the philosophy of psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. This episode talks about the development of personality, and as such, may reference things that make some listeners uncomfortable. Listener discretion is advised. Lecture 27, Tracing a Personality Style. So what I want to do today is I want to finish up on last week's lecture about the Schedler Western Assessment Procedure, and then I want to just briefly thumbnail sketch for you how you might go about tracing the development of a personality style. And I'm just going to exemplify that using predominantly psychopathy as the example. And then I'm going to very lightly do the same thing as a thumbnail sketch with narcissism. And then I'm going to take you into looking at narcissism in much greater detail. If there's a single take-home message from today's lecture, it's this. That when you're faced with personality styles like narcissism, the best assessment tool that you've got is your own reactions. The best assessment tool that you've got is your own reactions. And so you need to be able to tune in to how certain people make you feel. And I'm going to raise a few issues about that um, as we go. I got some lovely questions uh, by email from students from last week, and I'm going to use their questions as a basis to sort of flesh out uh, the lecture. But it's going to be a a fast ride because I've got so many slides to get through. So if I'm really going too fast and it's just boring you or going over your head, tell me to slow down by by making that gesture, okay? And no one else will even know you're doing it. Just say, slow down, Doris, okay? All right. So I wanted to distinguish between the three levels of difficulty. If if you're neurotic, um, you've only really got specific difficulties. It's a sort of patchwork life. Bits of your life are working, bits of your life are not working. That's most of us. Um, sometimes there are quite specific issues where people go for therapy, like if they've got gender and sexuality problems, they might go to a therapist. If they've got issues around loss, rejection, or just perfectionism and self-criticism, if they're an obsessional person, that's the kinds of things they tend to bring to therapy. But outside of that particular area, things are usually pretty good. If you move to a more severe level of function, where damage has occurred earlier in life, as a rule of thumb. So if you're working at a borderline level, you're working with someone who's at a borderline level, it's not so patchwork. The difficulties tend to be right throughout their lives, how they feel about themselves, their emotions, how they get on with other people, their capacity to work, um, all sorts of things like that. Explosions, warlike behaviours, it can be all on. And this is quite common when people are paranoid, psychopathic, narcissistic, sadistic. It's the name, I hope that Giselle's students are going, how dare you? How dare you have that in there, you know? Because we know that, of course, consensual adults can get involved in FNM, and I'm not sure whether one really can call that, you know, anything like borderline level. It just depends on what it is that's being enacted and how. But the Schedler Weston procedure that I've tried to convey to you It says, look, you've got to look at the extremity and the rawness of the client's emotions. And I'm going to be talking a lot about that. And they're more distorted than people at a neurotic level. Okay, so if I'm neurotic and I think the checkout girl doesn't like me, I'll go, oh, I feel as if that checkout girl doesn't like me. 
Whereas if I'm borderline, I'll say to her, what are you looking at? <laughs> okay? There's no possibility that she might actually feel nothing about me at all. The way that I see it in that particular moment is the way the world is. Okay? So that's what it means. The, the reality testing is lost. If I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps and a bit neurotic, as you do on a certain day, I might think the checkout person doesn't like me. Right? But if I'm neurotic, I'll know that it could be me. Right? Whereas the borderline, no possibility, it's the checkout girl. She's the problem. So there's more distorting defenses because you're distorting reality. You're seeing the world through your own lens. And this can evoke very strong reactions in the clinicians that are working with them. A rule of thumb, if you're sleepless over a client, they're probably borderline. If you're, that's honestly what my clinical friends tell me, and I know it to be true, right? If you're sleepless over a client, it's possible that they're at a borderline level of organization. If you feel kind of attacked and unsafe and uncertain and thrown around in the world, and you're normally reasonably chilled, then you know that you're picking up on something, you're getting drawn into something that's, that's their material. So it has therapeutic implications. You spot that, you change your technique. If you've got a repertoire of skills, so you might be a little bit more or less active, depending on the person that you've got in front of you. Um, with borderline clients, you've got to be very explicit about boundaries. So that means the session doesn't go on longer than an hour. You don't sh schedule sessions in unusual places. You don't go for walks, take them for a drive in the car, meet them in a bar or see them in a cafe or anything like that. It's all You've really got to hold the therapeutic frame, as it's called. You've got to be quite explicit about boundary setting. They don't add you on Facebook, etc. Right? Frequency of sessions. Um, if it's a borderline client, you don't want to get the attachment system activated. So you wouldn't have too frequent sessions because that's going to get them hooked into you in a very intense way. Um, so you either work in a very exploratory way. If you've got someone who's quite neurotic, that's a good thing. You know, go for it. You'd be very, very exploratory. It, the more borderline, the more supportive. If you get to the psychotic, uh, working with psychotic people, very supportive. You know, you don't don't rock the boat too much. Because, you see, if you're working in the neurotic range, they can see the as-if feature of transference. Does, is there anybody here who doesn't know what transference is? Because I'm aware I haven't defined that in the course at all. Do you have a sort of working idea of what transference is or no? No? Okay. What was that? Yeah? Okay, cool. I was hoping someone else would leap in and do it, but I don't want to put anyone on the spot. Okay, so what transference is is when I transfer. I transfer templates of previous relationships into a new relationship. But I don't know that I'm doing it. So I transfer templates from previous relationships into a new relationship. But I don't know that I'm doing it. Okay? So say I've got a problem with authority and I go into my analysis or my therapy, and the therapist, you know, very gently requires that I leave five minutes before the hour, which is what happens, you know. And I've got a real problem with, a you know, with authority, and I go, oh, you drive me mad. You're, you know, absolutely fill me with rage. You're just like my father, <laughs> okay? That's the moment where the, the as if you start to realize that you're transferring something, that this is the first time you've met this therapist. How could they possibly be getting you into such a rage? They haven't done anything that's unusual, unrealistic, and yet, and yet. So that's it. When you see the as if feature of transference, it's like 
you start to realize that you're bringing your stuff into the therapeutic situation. Now, what countertransference is, is when you, the therapist, who's supposed to be without sin and without need and with no issues of your own, of course, which is not true, but that's when something about this person, the actual person, triggers something from your past. Imagine that you've got a client that reminds you of your first love, total besotted first love, right? But they never really were quite besotted by you in the same way, right? Imagine that. You're going to have sort of, you know, you can have a different schema, aren't you? You're going to have a different set of expectations, beliefs, action tendencies, habits, and patterns towards this person if you accidentally think they're Stephen or, you know, whatever, yeah? So that's counter-transference. You've got to go, oh, my God, this person reminds me of Stephen, right? <laughs> I've got to be careful that I don't, you know, bring my stuff into the room. Because therapy is supposed to be safe. The only person's issues that are supposed to be really active in the room are the clients. That's why they pay you. And you keep your stuff bracketed. You can think about it. You know it's there. You're conscious of it. But you try not to have it have too much of an effect. It always has a bit of an effect. You know, there are people that you just really like because they remind you of Stephen. Okay. So what you want is a good working alliance. Now, a working alliance is the real relationship that's outside of transference. There are some people that think there's no outside of transference. But I think sometimes there is a working alliance. Like, it's real people really meeting, as well as the past of each of them colliding in all sorts of ways. And what happens is that with that partnership, that dyad, at least, can have a self-observing capacity. The person themselves might not be really good at self-observing, because the thing with borderline people is when their emotions are at a peak, then they can't think very rationally. So the only person doing the self-observing might be you if you're the therapist. <clears throat> but that means that partnership has got somebody who can self-observe. So that little dyad, they can borrow your resources. That's part of what therapy is. They haven't got self-reflective capacity at this moment because they're in pain, but you have. And so you bring that to bear gently into the situation. So it's a kind of a transactive, relational thing, really. <clears throat> If you're working with people in the borderline range, you need to take into account the fact that they've got extreme anxiety. They've got an intense reactivity to things. Like it will feel like their life is full of minefields. Everything's going wrong. Job, relationship, car, house, flatmates. You know, intense reactivity, and they'll bring that into the session. And so there's an incredible potential for things to regress where you might actually get hooked in and to act with them or to get upset with them or to get stirred around with them. And that's why you sometimes have a few sleepless nights. Now, there's the capacity, too, that once they start to attach to you, that they can start to regress. They can lose abilities that they previously had. Like they might have been absolutely keeping going to their job, They're suddenly in therapy, suddenly really starting to work with you, and they're suddenly turning up late for work, and they've never done that before, right? So things look like they're getting worse sometimes in therapy, and so you've got to keep an eye on that, I suppose. They have a lack of, of self-other constancy, and one of the hallmarks of working with people in the borderline range is they'll be talking about, say, lover X on Tuesday, and she'll be a cow, right? By Wednesday, she'll be a saint, and you'll be going, can I just check the name actually really was Jemima and 
So I'm like, this, oh, okay, right. You know, it's like they're talking about someone completely different. But that's what I mean by splitting, and we're going to talk about that later in the lecture. Splitting is when you sort of turn someone into an angel or turn them into a demon. And so Jemima on Tuesday was the demon, and Jemima on Wednesday was the angel. And there's just it feels like they're not talking about the same person at all. And you just have to hold that. You don't necessarily present them with that. You're being really inconsistent. You don't always say that. You wait till it's happened a few times. And then you might say, I noticed that you fluctuate a little bit, depending on your emotional state, as to how you view that person. Right? And if it draws a total blank, wait. <laughs> okay? And if they go, yeah, whoa, you're in. Okay? Something's happening. Um, but what you need to accept, and it's very difficult to do so, is that one of the reasons you get so stirred around, you sort of get pulled in close and then punched kind of thing, is that there's profound fears that are existing alongside very, very deep needs to be in connection and attached, and it's fearful. Was that a slowdown, Doris, signal? No? No, I'm just hallucinating. Right. I haven't even got on to talking about psychosis, and I'm already hallucinating. All right. So the therapeutic details. This might not mean so much to you, but for those who've done philosophy of psychoanalysis, this probably means quite a lot. But I'm just wanting to offer it to you for fullness, and I, I hope that you can get something from this. In some forms of therapy, they assume that you are a blank slate and that you don't offer very much of yourself. If you're working with people who are more borderline or more psychotic, you need to be more real. You need to offer more of yourself and not leave long silences. Don't lie them back on the couch so they can't see you because that could make them quite paranoid, um, those sorts of things. So in other words, your technique changes depending on how you assess the personality that's come in. What you'll find is that people will often wish for a longer session. They might bring up something absolutely huge five minutes before the session's supposed to finish. Can you still finish on time? You have to still finish on time. You have to hold your boundaries. It seems unkind, but you have to hold your boundaries. Otherwise, you can produce quite unmanageable regressions if they start to call the shots and not fit in with your agenda because you're the one who's keeping them safe. And if they get you to deviate from best practice, you're no longer keeping them safe. You're a bit lost. So the consistency of the therapeutic frame is vital. No, no, that's actually, everybody does that. You know, Freud says, ignore the letter and watch the PS. <laughs> everybody, for some reason, I've got no idea why, but they'll, sometimes it's that, oh, they wanted to say this to you, but they've been too embarrassed. And so it's actually just as they're leaving, oh, by the way, I've got five lovers. See ya. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you know. Okay, so it'd be like, it's not the hallmark of these people, but if it's consistent, if they do it all the time and they, and they say, could we go for two hours, that's more the hallmark of the borderline. The neurotic person's more like me. They'll be just going, I've got five lovers, bye. <laughs> Cop that for the next week, you know. Okay. Um, they're very, very sensitive to shifts in tone, especially anything that might signal abandonment, rejection, or criticism, and sometimes they will be so critical of themselves that even if you just nod, they'll take that as you're agreeing that they're useless and worthless, okay? So you've got to really, really watch. Um, the transference is actually quite intense. Sometimes you the one thing that you must never do when you're a therapist is actually act in the real world on behalf of that person, right? But they'll sometimes try to get you to act in the real world on behalf of them. 
and they'll be scripting you quite strongly into doing stuff that you wouldn't normally do, right? So you need to realize that that's transference and not accidentally rescue them or protect them or speak on their behalf to someone else, for instance. It's a tricky one. And that's probably not quite the right level for a third-year class, but just for the record. So one thing that you try and do is you focus on the here and now. The theory, what's great about transference is you're not just working on the past. The past gets recreated, sometimes horribly, <laughs> in the present moment. And so you can actually just work with what's happening and unfolding now, and you're actually addressing the person's issues from the past because they're reanimating for you in a way. But you've usually got to be, if you're working with someone at a borderline level, you've got to be very active, thoughtful, you've got to be very structured. That's the crucial thing. That's number one. And you've actually also got to be quite affectively expressive. So the blank slate really doesn't work so well with borderline clients. They experience it as an abandonment. So you need to be present, a real person, but also an incredibly thoughtful person, keeping your own issues you know, under control. If you're working with um, people who are in the psychotic register, it's much more supportive. You don't want to contribute to their anxieties. I always let um, people choose where they'd like to position the chair because um, sometimes that distance might be greater than you might have imagined. So, you know, it, it's sometimes nice not to even sit down and go, so where would, where would you like the chairs to be? And they might just drag them a few feet back. And you go, oh, great, okay. So they set the distance. And you might notice that distance shifts and changes, but they've got to feel okay about that. You identify what are the strengths the person's got and you build on them. But you've got to be very authoritative and competent. So you've got to have a bit of self-worth and a good supervisor. And a peer support team is great as well. So you need your backup. Okay. Thumbnail sketches now. So that's me finished off last week's lecture, and I'm very pleased that we did that because I think that's quite important if you end up working practically in any sort of way. Um, if you have to write reports for people that come through juvenile justice or the prison system, it's not going to hurt you to be able to know roughly what level of organisation you're dealing with here and what level of damage. Um, okay, so the first few lectures I was talking about trays and how they can be structured by stats. And then I talk to you about in-depth assessment of personality and how the kind of assessment or category that you put a person into can be structured by an algorithm that is like the residue of the wisdom of hundreds of clinicians. And it's number crunching your observations to generate a profile that's like a T-scores where certain things that are way above um, two standard deviations are likely to be personality difficulties or personality disorders, depending on your language. Okay. What I want to do now is I want to show you how theory can also enable you to structure your understanding of a personality style. And I think in an ideal world, you would have statistical profiles, you'd have qualitative analyses of their letters and their dreams and their fantasies, you would do the Schedler-Weston assessment procedure, you'd be very attentive to your own reactions to them, but you'd also have a good theoretical understanding of what it is that's likely to have produced this personality style. Now, I, I could do a theoretical account of you know, the paranoid personality or the schizoid personality or the hysteric, 
And I'm not choosing to do that today. What I'm choosing to do is show you some stuff that I've been doing research on because I know that stuff deeply and I know it from a number of different vantage points. And so I can share perhaps a richer story with you than merely a clinical story. So I'm trying to show you now how you can use theory to piece together an understanding of different personality styles. And I'm largely going to talk about psychopaths for the next little minute or two. Okay, but here's the general framework first. And I've already, I hope, got this in place. That was not last week's lecture, but the week before where I was really hoping you all still had a pulse at the end of the lecture because it was one heavy lecture. Okay, but I wanted to get all this stuff in place so I can use it, and now I'm going to use it. Okay, so the first milestone is attunement. Does the mother or father pick up on the state of the child, reflect that back to the child in another register, another sensory modality, so that the child picks up on two things? One is, gee, I'm aware of my inner processes. Gee, that person is aware of my inner processes. And they look like they might have inner processes something like me. So they start to get that bridge between self and other. Both a bridge, a linkage, but also a distinction between self and other. And what falls out of that is that you start to be able to pay attention to the bodily clout of your own feelings. Your pleasure feels real to you. You know what the phenomenology, what the lived experience of certain emotions are. You're not afraid of them. You can tolerate them. You can bear them. Borderline people find them very difficult to tolerate and bear because the difficulties have started right from attunement. The greater the damage, the earlier the difficulties. That's the rule of thumb. So you also start to become aware of the lived experience of the specificity of your own body. <clears throat> like you start to work out, gee, I've got a slightly pacey temperament. <laughs> you know, And you learn, oh, okay, that's going to take a bit of managing. And that's one thing that parents also teach you, is they teach you how to self-soothe initially. Emotion regulation is not something you do on your own. It's done dyadically between you and someone else. And you learn how to do it for yourself as a result of their modeling, but also as a result of the kind of quality of connection that you get to them. So after those affects are kind of in place and you can soothe them and bear them and tolerate them and use them for the information they've got for you about what's interesting in the world to you, you also can devise a theory of mind. Like you work out what I know is not necessarily what my mother knows or what my father knows. That perspective makes a difference. And that's what all those theory of mind tests are about, sort of false belief tasks. Um, this, is, this looks like a packet of Smarties, I've already opened it when that person wasn't in the room and I know there are Band-Aids in it. What is that person going to think is in that box that's got Smarties on the cover? They're going to think there are Smarties in it, but they're wrong. So you don't assume that everything you know, they also know. And you've got to be like that with a therapist. It might be, well, I can see that they're calling Jemima a cow one day and a saint the next day, but they might not bring those two facts together. So you have to recognize that not everybody sees things the way you see things. That's what theory of mind is really good for. Then, if all this has gone well, they've been attuned, they're attached, they, you self-soothe, you've got theory of mind, then you come to trust others, you trust your own inner bodily processes, and you have got the stage set for a capacity for empathy. And that's just 
what it takes to get there. It's not very far along, but lots of people don't get there. So this is a picture of it, all grey and yucky. I've got to get somebody to help me with my pictures. Okay. So you can sort of see that we're in the self-other distinction on the left-hand side, we've got trust, attachment, and empathy. That has implications for morality, because if, you, if you're attached to others, if you trust others generically, and you've got a capacity to feel on behalf of another person, you're going to be unwilling to harm that other. You're going to be able to respect them as a whole other. And you're going to have self-respect. And then there's a further step, which we'll talk about towards the end of this lecture series, like around weeks 11 and 12, which is about personalization. In other words, it's all very well just to become obedient to morality or obedient to laws. But what if you live in an apartheid state? Or what if you live in a... What if you're working for an agency where the government is, say, a military regime and they command you to torture? Okay, what do you do there? In other words, is there something beyond uh, conformity and obedience? Is, you know, how, do you, how do you position yourself? So I sort of told you more than you ever wanted to know about attachment style, I know. And then you get the trust or the distrust. And this is the cascading constraints, you see. If you turn on the path towards distrust, you move in the direction of not having empathy and having a capacity to exploit. If you take the path of trust, then you have both empathy for the other and self-regard, and you're much less likely to be a narcissist, a Machiavellian, or a psychopath. Because almost, I would say, all three of those have taken the distrust path. And you take that path very early, and it has knock-on consequences. That's what cascading constraints mean, that early deviations in the path, early trajectories, have big consequences and cumulative consequences later on. So, say I've been pretty nicely attached. I see other people as largely benign. I've got this kind of global kind of trust. I see trust as a default condition. That doesn't mean that I'm a, a piece of psychopath fodder waiting to be gobbled up by the first psychopath because gullibility, as you remember, I'm sure, is unwarranted trust. You trust when you've got no good reason to trust. Whereas ordinary trust is when there's good reason, it's warranted. You've observed enough about this person to believe that they're worthwhile to trust. And if you're smart, you'll revise that. If that person never pays for the coffee and never pays for dinner and is always 50 minutes late and has stolen your last three girlfriends or boyfriends, right? <laughs> it's like, hmm, I don't know, this trust is default. It's not looking good suddenly in regards to that person. Okay, So you can have specific loopholes. I trust humanity. I just don't trust Jane or don't trust James or whatever. Okay, You know about this. So Gertman says trust is where you believe in the sincerity, benevolence of others in general. So it's, it's a nice kind of global sort of worldview. But psychopaths are actually very low in trust, and one of the difficult things about them is that they're very quick to pick up on gullible others, <clears throat> and they pick them sometimes on sociological attributes, like people that are alone or recently bereaved or broke <clears throat> or uncertain of their attractiveness. And they zoom in. Okay, so how might psychopathy arise? Well, do they trust their inner processes? It's hard to know whether they've got the full scope of emotions 
to trust. And that's one of the things I want to pick up on. Because you see, you need to have your own full range of feeling intact for you to be able to pick up on that whole full range of feeling in other people. If you don't know what, it, what fear feels like, how could you be sympathetic to someone who's feeling afraid? Because you don't know what it's like. Okay, so you need to have had the direct experience so that you can have the vicarious understanding on behalf of another. Okay, so let's have a look at psychopathy. This is um, focusing on the uh, parameter one or factor one of psychopathy called callous unemotionality. It's one of the most interesting factors for me. And they were looking at a sample of men that had already been caught by the law and were in prison. They wired them up so they could look at skin conductance, how quickly an electric sort of current passes across, across your palm, and it goes more quickly the more sweaty your palm is because water's a good conductor. Okay, So the more nervous you are, the faster the electrical current will zip across your palm. It, they were uh, assessing heart rate, and facial expressions as indicators of attention. And Levinston and his colleagues found that those who were high on callous unemotionality were much slower to see the emotional and motivational significance of the stimuli that they were being shown. They were being shown mutilated children and starving others, okay? Something that would affect us very strongly. In other words, normally, when you picked, oh my God, it's a, it's an image of an emaciated child, and you startle, and your attention flicks away. It's not something you really can control. Believe me, Sylvan Tompkins, apparently, and I think this, I read this in his book, he fired a pistol 66 times behind a guy's head while having a camera zoomed in on his eyes to see if the guy could inhibit his startle. I don't think he got tinnitus. I think it was all right, but he didn't manage to inhibit his startle. So something like that's a very good indicator because you can't fake it. You can't fake that you're not startling. Okay. So those with the most deviant startle pattern were those highest on the CU or the emotional detachment. So even at a bodily level, they're not reacting normally, usually, to uh, emotional stimuli. James Blair, and I've got all these articles up online, he found that um, from even from about age four, you can pick children who seem to have deficient functioning in the right amygdala in particular. And children in this range have enormous difficulty naming a facial display as fear or naming a facial display as distress. They take longer to recognize it, and they make more errors. And they have much greater difficulty picking up on uh, fear or distress from the other's voice. Like if I went, oh, I hurt my toe, right? You wouldn't have too much difficulty knowing that's distress. But that would be a mystery to children who have got this, um, who are high on CU. So, And the sorts of stimuli they have, I've got these if you're at all interested, they're in gradations of 10%. They become increasingly like fear. And they sort of morph up. And so the trick is, how soon do you know what the name of this emotion is? And you call it out the minute you know it. And that's your score. So if you get it when it's only 10%, you're doing really well. But if it's right up to 100% and you're still not getting it right, and then you say, um, happiness, okay, not so great. 
Right. And that's the sort of pattern of responses that, that marks out both psychopathically inclined children and psychopathically inclined adults. Although psychopathically inclined adults end up being able to detect distress, but they never end up being able to detect and correctly name fear. So that's interesting. So they're less able to discern or see emotional states in another person. And if you can't even see what state the other person's in, you haven't really got, you you can't get off first base in terms of having empathy. So this inability to pick up on distress or fear means that hot empathy doesn't form. Because if I see that you're afraid, I'm going to resonate with your fear. Like I'm going to sort of feel compassion for you or I'm going to want to eliminate the source of fear or protect you in some way. But I do that because I sense, oh my God, that person's afraid and I don't like my own state and it's, it's going to soothe me if I can help you as well. So it's a sort of win-win situation. But if I don't have that bodily feedback, there's nothing to stop me from harming another. Um, and so one of the things that normally makes us inhibit violence is gone. And if it's not just a lack, if it's not just that they lack empathy, but if they've also got the presence of a kind of sexualized violence, what Freud called an anaclesis, a propping on of one drive on the other, um, or if they've got a cruelty, then they, they've got a totally different repertoire of possibilities. But the fact that they don't get that bodily sanction, like I would feel lousy harming another, it would be agony, that normally would stop me from doing it, or it would make me very remorseful. But if I don't get that feedback, then there's a kind of an impunity that they're capable of. So what it means, and I really can tell you we have pretty good data on this, that harm-based moral concerns are very unlikely to arise. That's something I'll come back to later on in a later lecture. But if you ask psychopaths about the trolley problem, you know, if the, if the train keeps going down this track, it's going to kill three people. If you flick the switch, it'll go onto another track and only one person will die. You're not really interested in the decision they make, although they make very zany decisions. What you are interested in is their reasoning why they would intervene or not intervene. And with psychopathic reasoning, it's all about them. Well, nobody innocent gets tied to train tracks, and I'm not going to get involved. You know, I could look like a fool, or, you know, gee, that would be bad for me, wouldn't it, right? The other person will harm, or it's just not figuring. Okay. So um, one of the things that uh, James Blair found is that morals and conventions seem like the same thing to psychopathically inclined people. Like, is it okay to talk in class? They say, no, no, that's really bad. Is it okay to murder someone? No, that's bad. Which one's worse? Oh, no, they're both bad, right? <laughs> okay? Um, that's never been replicated, that study. I have to tell you, though, that, that everyone's tried to replicate that. And there's the possibility that they thought it was related to their parole because they were incarcerated. So they were... They thought, mm, I'm supposed to seem really moral. Can't distinguish between these two things. I'll say they're both really bad. And so it's quite possible. Okay. So one of the crucial milestones, and I know it sounds simple, but it's actually very, very tough, is to truly have in place a distinction between self and other. And yet all the good things in life require empathy, theory of mind, love. You, theory of mind, you've got to recognize that person's got beliefs, desires, intentions, just as you do, but they've got different beliefs and desires and intentions because they're them and you're you. And that's what love is about. 
it's it's so it's loving the person to such an extent that you are concerned for what's going to be best for them, even if it goes against what's best for you sometimes. And empathy requires that you really know the difference between self and other, okay, to really be able to work in that person's best interests, feel on behalf of them, you have to keep your own emotions a little bit bracketed to be truly empathic. It's not just, you know, um, a fear fest where your own fear is mixed in with theirs. Now, a pivotal thing about narcissists is that they rely on others, but they do it in a sort of sneaky way, and they don't really acknowledge that they're relying on others, and so they don't thank or apologize others to others. And that's one of the most powerful hallmarks of working with a narcissistically inclined person, is that they actually won't thank you, and they won't apologize. That's because dependence is a big no-no for them, and they seem to have to have this vision of independence that's kind of unrealistic, an unrealistic level of self-sufficiency, basically. Despite, and what's weird is they're saying, I'm so self-sufficient, but can you just soothe my emotions for me and make me feel really great about myself and tell me I'm amazing and wonderful all the time? Thank you very much. Okay, so they're outsourcing their um, self-esteem maintenance and their affective soothing, but no way are they going to acknowledge that they're doing that and that they need you. So there's all sorts of possible theoretical explanations for narcissism. I think they've all got something to say, to be really honest. If your parents have really, you know, given you praise for non-contingent effort, like they've given you praise when you actually haven't done anything at all, you're going to think the goodies fall to me without me having to lift a finger. So a bit of social learning theory in there. And you're going to overvalue yourself, perhaps. Um, there's a bit of what Carl Rogers would call the creation of a false self. Absolutely the case. Very, very true. And Freud, he says with the narcissist, there's a kind of, there's a kind of withdrawal of investment and energy and interest in the world, and all the investment of energy and interest is on oneself. But there's no awareness that, that you're doing that. Okay. And so those self-other distinctions are, are quite unstable, says Freud. And narcissists certainly blur self and others. They outsource their needs and they'll assimilate to their achievements things that are done by another. So if you're in a team working with a narcissistic person, don't hold your breath for them to acknowledge how much you put into the team effort because they're going to be going, oh yes, I'm pretty wonderful, aren't I? And you'll be going, hmm, I did a bit of work too. So grandiosity, most of what's until very recently, most of what was called narcissism in the mainstream psychological literature was grandiosity. Akhtar, who's a psychoanalyst writing back in 1982, strongly distinguished between grandiosity and, and vulnerable narcissism, but it takes a little while for these things to percolate through into the mainstream literature, and it's absolutely there now, thank goodness. Um, but grandiosity is perhaps the least appealing and most visible aspect of narcissism, but it's not actually the most dangerous, believe it or not. It's actually the covert narcissists you've got to watch. The ones that are going around saying, I wish I had longer lips so I could kiss myself, you know, they're, they're actually not too bad. They're pains in the neck, I'm sure, but um, they're not, they're not going to nuke you quite as much as uh, the covert narcissists. So they want to protect an unrealistically enhanced you know, photoshopped image of themselves. And when you're talking narcissism, you're always going to have both features there in the same personality. 
just one's going to be on the outside and the other's going to be inside. So that what is the false self differs. With the grandiose narcissist, it's the grandiosity that's the false self. With the vulnerable narcissist, it's the vulnerability that's the false self. And they're quite stable presentations. People tend not to flick around between the two. You kind of get a particular narcissistic style, and, and that sort of sticks with it. Look, in the um, mainstream literature, they're really on to the fact that parental mixed messages as, are crucial. The message that the child often gets is that they're loved for their skills, but not for who they are. So they're loved for what they can give the parents, but not for who they are. And so if, and it's really common for parents to be terribly, terribly proud of their children and, you know, skite and boast about, you know, how well they're doing and things like that. But that's different perhaps in degree from only liking the child when they're achieving and not liking the little forlorn one that's got self-doubts and isn't managing to achieve, you know. If they're, if both aspects of the child are loved, then that's not that's not a narcissistic environment. It's when there's kind of that emphasis on achievement, or for whatever reason the child has focused on that. Because, you know, they bring perceptual abilities to the situation too, so I'm not parent bashing here. But ambivalent messages, if you want to look at the Otway and Vignol's article, the reason it's so cool is because they use this quite wonderful statistical technique called structural equation modeling, which enables you to look at the pattern or process when you've only got a sort of snapshot cross-sectional data. And they found that the fit of the model was stronger when both parental overvaluation and cold rejection were both in play. So, And they didn't really distinguish between treatment by mother and treatment by father. So we don't know if it's that one parent's doing one thing and the other's doing the other, or somebody's running hot and cold. One of my honours students has actually been working to separate out the contributions of mother and father to try and take this model a little bit further. And it's, it seems to have worked pretty nicely. Okay. Now, in the psychoanalytic literature, narcissism and shame are just the two words that you know come off your lips first, as it were, because um, shame is absolutely central to any understanding of narcissism. Because that's what creates a false self. If there's something I'm ashamed of, it's not going to be part of my persona. It's not going to be part of the mask that I show towards the world. If there's something I'm ashamed of, I'm going to be hiding that. And if I think, gee, if you ever found out that about me, you wouldn't love me, I'm not just going to be temporarily hiding it. I'm going to be really hiding it. So I may even end up repressing it rather than just partitioning it. Okay. Um, and so it may be that you end up lacking a, an inner sense of self-worth, which is why you need other people to tell you you're great all the time, and you rely on them. And it could be that you really have never quite been able to take on board your own looking after yourself, soothing your own emotions, feeling the reality of your feelings and going, it doesn't matter if no one else feels this way, this is how I feel, Right. Um, and that means that you're a separate person and you can let others be others. But if that hasn't happened, you, you kind of sort of end up a little bit hooked up and into others in an unhelpful way. Now, what always troubled me for years was that um, the NPI narcissism, grandiose narcissism, doesn't correlate at all with shame. 
So I'm thinking, and you're calling that a measure of narcissism? <laughs> I'm not sure about that, you know. And if you look at the covert measure, which I'm going to tell you about, it does correlate with shame. So something a bit interesting going on. So empathy requires that you can separate self and other so that you can recognize that that other person is the source of the emotion that you're experiencing empathically. It's, an, it's a vicarious emotion, and it's aroused on behalf of the other, even though you're feeling it within yourself. Now, because I've said narcissists blur self and other, and they outsource their needs to others, and they try to get you to do psychic functions for them, like self-soothing, Theoretically, you would predict that they're hopeless at empathy. And that was what I did. I predicted they were useless at empathy, both hot and cold, I thought. But I wasn't quite sure whether they'd be useless at both hot and cold, but they are. And I can show, I mean, I can make articles available for you. So in an interesting way, the fact that they haven't got that empathic resonancing, that puts them ahead of the field, really, in being able to exploit and manipulate others against their interests. So what I would like to suggest to you now, and I hope this doesn't confuse you, is that narcissism is something that underlies Machiavellianism and psychopathy. So both of those other personality styles, Machiavellianism and psychopathy, have a narcissistic core to them. So when you see that they correlate in the literature, no surprise. They've got heaps and heaps of features in common. And that's why thinking theoretically is actually quite useful rather than just thinking statistically or thinking like the DSM, that everything's got to be cut and dried with, with no overlap. It's impossible because anybody that's got a personality disorder is going to have early damage and early damage is going to be around self-soothing, attunement, theory of mind, empathy. So my hunch would be that most personality disorders would have stuff going wrong there. Okay. Now, one of the more sinister findings, I was reading um, an article by Patricia Hawley, H-A-W-L-E-Y. She's really interesting. Oh, I got up there. Great. Um, and she actually um, was citing Torbett's research, which is a bit chilling. So you've caught these relationally aggressive people, which she sees as Machiavellians, and you've put them into intervention programs to stop them being such bullies, basically. The problem is that they find a way in that treatment situation of staying beneath the radar of the authorities and re-victimizing their victims in the treatment program. Because they are so able to be sensitive to the victim's vulnerabilities that they can press on the bruise but not be seen. So you see why I was a bit surprised because how can they be so good at picking up on the vulnerabilities of others if they've got no empathy? How do they do that? And that's, that's an interesting question. But Machiavellian men, it seems, don't just lack empathy. It's not just an absence of something. There's actually a slight sort of sexualized aggression in Machiavellian men. And that is where they actually prefer graphic horror with female victims. If you say, okay, we've got some graphic horror here that's nine on the Richter scale, but it's got men as the victims, 
Or you can have some graphic horror that's only six on the Richter scale, but it's got female victims. Oh, I'll go for the six. Okay. So they actually have quite strong preferences that there's got to be a particular kind of gendered target um, for their fascination. So, so that was an interesting. That took me ages to realize because I was so busy looking for lags that I didn't notice that there was actually the presence of sexualized aggression and the presence of an active enjoyment of cruelty as well. I've only found one article that looks at uh, psychopathy in adult women, and I don't think there's quite the same interest in horror, but let me get back to you on that. I'll read it. Yeah. What was that? Would that be the same for people who are gay? That's a really good question. I don't, this study certainly, see, you could, you could extend this research in that way because I'm not sure these people even took um, erotic orientation into account. They just took, you know, were you biologically male? So that's a very good um, question, yeah. In this study, I think it was only the men that they found this finding for, and I think there were women in this sample, but it's a while since I've read it. Okay. Okay, the next part of the lecture, I'll just, I'll just go for two more minutes and then let you have five, ten minutes break. I think we're going to get through it today, but you never know. Okay. Right. So, the myth of narcissism, I'm going to tell you very briefly. I'm going to talk to you about cultural contributions to narcissism. I'm going to talk to you more than you ever wanted to hear about shame, and I'll speed through that as, as I see you falling asleep. Um, I'll talk about splitting the self, because it's utterly pivotal, and one of my MPhil students just got her master's through, and she found the most amazing stuff around splitting and narcissism and anxiety, so I can tell you about that a bit later, once she's formally had it accorded. Um, and I'll talk to you about the incapacity for love. Okay, so we get these beautiful images of Narcissus, and I'll just tell you the myth before you go grab your coffee. Um, so Narcissus was an exquisitely beautiful young man, and everybody fell in love with him of both genders, and he never fell in love with anybody at all. And this woman, she, I think she was a nymph, called Echo, although I don't know if she was called Echo at the time, but she loved him so much that she wished that he would learn what it was like to experience unrequited love. And her suffering was so great that the gods took pity on her. He runs away from her. She you know, fades away so that only the sound of her voice is left. She can only repeat what people have said, and hence Echo. He goes into the woods, finds this pool, sees this person because of the self-other blurring, doesn't realize it's himself, falls passionately in love with it, can't leave it. And every time he reaches down to, to kiss it, he disturbs the water and it disappears. And so he stays there for so long that he pines away and dies and feels the unrequited love, just as Echo said. And that's why the little Narcissus lilies that are on the edge of the pond are so named. Yeah. So that's the myth of Narcissus. It's about self-love, but it's also about not recognising the distinction between self and other. That was Lecture 27 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.